Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So everyone, if you had a personal assistant, and I don't mean somebody who is hired to assist you in your official duties, like, you know, if you're the Secretary of State and need somebody to walk your dog, but a straight up personal assistant who was there to run errands, to take care of things that you just didn't have time to do. What would this, what would you ask this magical person to do for you? Well, right now in work from home, social distancing world, I would ask that person to cut my hair. Please cut my hair. <laughs> Hopefully they'd be qualified to do so. No dishes, no laundry. Like, do you do dishes now or you want them to do the laundry i don't ever want to do dishes or laundry again that's it no dishes no laundry everything else is gravy i would be i I would also like them to clean out my closet and organize all of the stuff that i meant to do during quarantine and now two months in have yet to actually get done so you want marie kondo yes yeah. I, yes, that is that is who I want to come be my personal assistant. <laughs> we'll, call, we'll call her. She needs she needs she needs the work. I need a personal assistant to assuage my guilt over my unfulfilled aspirations. Also, yes. if you're Marie Kondo and you have a personal assistant, but you've organized yourself as to the degree to which she does, <laughs> like what does the assistant do? Mess things up. That <laughs> <laughs> keeps her busy. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Pompeo in the Doghouse edition. I'm Shane Harris. Woof, woof. That could be Pompeo. Yes, who let the dogs out indeed. That could be Pompeo in the Watchdog edition. Watchdog House. Ooh, I see what you did there, Shane. Or there's an empty Watchdog House at the State Department. If I had an inspector general, I'd rather have an inspector general than a personal assistant that I could task to go investigate people for me. I guess that would be more like a reporting assistant, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be more like you. Yeah, that guy already have that job. I keep putting myself out of a job. It's I like am Marie here. Kondo having an assistant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shane having his own reporter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be quiet. All right. I'm here in the remote jungle studio, joined by my friend friends. Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and our good friend Amanda Sloat is with us this week. Hi, everybody. Hello. Amanda, you have not been on the podcast during the time of the pandemic. Usually you're on here to talk to us about Brexit, which, gosh, it just seems like a simpler time, doesn't it? It does. It does. Everybody, including in the UK, is quite nostalgic for those days (laughs) when Brexit was the main story. But never fear, Brexit is continuing to churn along despite coronavirus. That's good. I'm glad the abstract existential crisis has not been put off the stage by the actual existential crisis that that fills me with some uh, some hope that things. See, just when you think things can't get worse, they always do. (laughs) They sure can. (laughs) We're going to talk about them this week. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to say a special special thanks to everybody who joined us last week for the Zoom live show. That was so much fun, wasn't it, you guys? So fun. It was a blast. How many people did we have who joined the Zoomcast, Ben? It was over 300. There were, I think there were uh, around 350 who showed up at some point and or, or, or RSVP'd and maybe it was around 
I don't know, 250, 200 to 250 who were there through the whole thing. Let's just say 300. That sounds better. Uh, let's say 1,000. 1,000 thousand people came. It was great. We were all snorting hydroxychloroquine. We had a great time. They were the best people. The best people. Very the best high people quality. I love it. On the podcast this week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in hot water over the firing of an inspector general at the State Department. A newly declassified email shows that Barack Obama wanted the Russia investigation handled by the book. And around Scandalous. the world. <laughs> you hold your horses, mister. Have you been taking hydroxy again? You're very excited. So today. much of it. So <laughs> much. With a little bleach chaser? I wake I've up. I've been chewing some Tide Pods. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know that old Doors song, Al, I woke up this morning and I took some hydroxychloroquine. Yes, I'm quite familiar with it. That's uh, Yeah, good. And around the world, people are slowly emerging from lockdowns and quarantines. And we're going to talk about their fascinating stories. Um, Let us start with the man of the hour, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You remember him. Let me quickly run through some of the highlights of what has been a busy week for the secretary. Um, President Trump has fired the State Department Inspector General Steve Linick at Pompeo's behest, Uh, with the secretary telling my colleague at the Washington Post, Carol Morello, that Linig was undermining the department's mission. He did not elaborate on how. Uh, Linig had been investigating a number of issues about Pompeo, including his use of staff to run personal errands. And according to a member of Congress, whether the secretary inappropriately helped sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. And NBC News is now reporting that Pompeo held lavish Madison dinners, as he called them after James Madison, at the State Department headquarters, featuring relatively few dignitaries and exclusively Republican members of Congress when he did invite people from the Hill, which has raised a lot of questions about whether these events were actually meant to build up his political Rolodex and his donor base, possibly ahead of future runs for office. So, Tammy, help frame this event uh, are these events really for us? Um, Pompeo obviously has been a controversial secretary. We've talked a lot on the show about him. He is hardly beloved by the career workforce at Foggy Bottom. He is fiercely and vocally, publicly loyal to the president. How much do you think it matters that Pompeo seems to have gotten this inspector general fired? And what impact will this have on the department? Thanks, Shane. So this is the Secretary of Swagger. Let's remember that Mike Pompeo um, became secretary in the wake of Rex Tillerson's horrifically destructive attempts to reorganize the department, slash its budget, freeze its hiring. And so when Pompeo arrived, his closeness with the president, uh, the confidence of his leadership style, actually brought a breath of fresh air to the department. Um, But that honeymoon ended pretty quickly. And interestingly, um, Inspector General Linick is someone who's kind of been there all the way along. So a very early scandal at the very beginning of the Trump administration was the accusation that Brian Hook, um, who was then the director of policy planning for the department, ousted a career uh, civil service officer from the policy planning staff because she was Iranian-American. And Inspector General Linick investigated that and issued a report that was very critical 
uh, of Brian Hook, who has faced no concrete consequences. Shortly after that, there was an inspector general investigation of the Bureau of International Organization Affairs, where the political appointee, Senate-confirmed assistant secretary, was bullying staff and creating a toxic work environment. And that person has faced no consequences from IG Linux report protected apparently by the White House. State Department leadership basically told the career staff in the International Organizations Bureau that they couldn't do anything about this guy and everyone was just going to have to put up with it. Now the, the scandals have enmeshed Pompeo personally. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Pompeo said to the president, you know, this guy's been nothing but trouble to us. Why don't we get rid of him? Um, it, it might only be surprising that it didn't happen before. But of course, before it didn't impinge on Pompeo's personal prerogatives. What does it matter that the IG has been ousted? It's worth noting, too, that the inspector general, um, this inspector general, is the same one who investigated Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. He was appointed during the Obama administration, but he sure has caused a lot of headaches for Democrats through that work. And so there's not a lot of evidence that he was acting in a partisan way. And at least in the State Department, the Office of Inspector General is not just kind of the ombudsman, the place that you go to when there's a problem. The OIG actually does regular inspections of every bureau and every embassy, and it's got a staff with Foreign Service and Civil Service folks rotating in and out. And every career officer in the department um, regularly has gets inspected in some way or another by the OIG's office. So not having a Senate-confirmed inspector general is a procedural problem for the department, in addition to the problem that it removes effective oversight over the kinds of things that it seems as though Secretary Pompeo was trying to do, like maybe using his office for personal or political benefit um, and maybe abusing his staff and making them walk Sherman the dog. Ben, I'm reminded of your own tangle in the past with uh, Secretary Pompeo when he was the director of the CIA. And I didn't you, you foyed his fudge recipe. You can remind listeners about that. But what reminds me of that you can tell that story, but what I bring that up is that I, I've done reporting on the unusual role that Susan Pompeo, Mike Pompeo's wife, has played at the agency, um, you know, where staff were detailed, at least on a temporary basis, to assist her in vague duties uh, when she had an office in the seventh floor executive suite. It raised a lot of eyebrows then. And it sort of created, I think, for a lot of people I've talked to, and since this impression of Pompeo uh, and maybe even the Pompeos as somehow feeling entitled to certain trappings and perks by virtue of their official office and perhaps not even really understanding why this is a problem. And I think the Madison dinner story from NBC News really kind of brought this home where, you know, you look at the people who were attending this and this doesn't look like a foreign policy dinner. This looks like an attempt for him, for, for Mike Pompeo to network with political heavies and, and famous people. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious what you think of that. And, and given your own sort of running with him and the way he reacted to, you know, uh, to your inquiries, what you make of this idea about how he sees this office and is he entitled to ask for these things? 
Yeah, I mean, I always joke about the fud, what I call Pompeo Fudgegate, but the truth of the matter is that it's a pretty creepy thing for a CIA director to do, um, and reflects a both a kind of entitlement sense and and a real prickliness that I think are some of his hallmarks. So just to be clear, I did not FOIA his mother's fudge recipe. I FOIA'd the Christmas letter that he sent to uh, the CIA workforce. And the reason I did was that I had heard uh, some complaints um, about it, some of which had been public. Um, Ned Price, the former CIA officer, uh, and Democratic uh, national security messenger messenger guy uh, tweeted the workforce message of the CIA director who brought the head of the Family Research Council to Langley was predictably non-inclusive and the accompanying photos, nearly all featuring GOP presidents from Trump to Nixon, conveyed stark partisanship. And, you know, there had been a, a sort of grumbling about that he had sent a sort of particularly sectarian Christmas message. And so I FOIA'd the Christmas letter that he sent to the Bureau, uh, to, to the workforce. I was actually surprised when I got it at how anodyne it was. But was, what was really remarkable was how angry his letter to me. So he, he responds, the only time I've ever gotten a letter from an agency head in response to a FOIA request. He posted it on the CIA's website. And so, you know, it was it was a super personal response. He also CC'd it to the president of Brookings, John Allen, and to Jack Goldsmith, who is one of my co-founders of Lawfare. And so he like he did it in this very uh personal way. And at the end of it, at the end of this is a two-page long letter, he said, we both agree that our country is facing some of the most complex national security challenge in history and that we all benefit if we work jointly to promote America's national security, even if we disagree on the best way forward. It is unfortunate, indeed sad, that you chose to publicly cast doubt on our team without so much as the courtesy of a simple phone call that could well have answered your, quote, question, unquote. You should have been better than that, Ben. I hope that you will try the fudge recipe. So the letter includes his his mother-in-law's fudge recipe. And that I also included that I also included in the workforce message. It is my mother's fudge recipe, and she loved that others enjoyed it during the holiday season. And just so that uh, to be clear, uh, the fudge recipe turns out to be almost verbatim the one that is on the marshmallow fudge package, uh, the, the the marshmallow fluff package, as uh, one of my colleagues decided when she decided to make the Pompeo fudge recipe. So I, and what are you implying about his mother? She, you know, I, I imply nothing except that she is not the most original fudge cook in the world. I've never really known what to make of this letter. It's still on the CIA's website to this day. And so I think about it and look this, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that this happened in roughly the same time period that you, Shane, were working on some reporting about his handling of 
his sort of sense of entitlement and Susan Pompeo's having an office on the seventh floor of the of the CIA and a sort of uh, a, a sort of sense of of the place as serving their needs in some sense. And I think that has carried over in, into state. And the idea that if an IG investigates that, the proper thing to do is to pick up the phone and call the president and say, hey, can you fire this IG for me? He's like spending too much time investigating my sort of personal use of the office is uh, really peculiar. And I, I just think the, guy, the guy's expectations of what public service are are really very strange. Amanda, what do you make of this? Uh, well, I agree very much with with everything the two of them said, uh, apart from the the fudge recipe, which I have have not had the opportunity to to try. Um, but but Ben's referencing of the intelligence community raises the fact that the IC Zone Inspector General was removed several weeks ago, uh, which really reinforces, I think, a lot of public questions of trust of what's happening across the Trump administration. Uh, Pompeo has yet to actually actually give a very clear and robust explanation for his decisions to remove the inspector general, which is contributing to a lot of the speculation about whether it's because he was simply getting too close to some of the things that Pompeo was involved in, rather than there actually being any sort of legitimate or defensible reason. Uh, Tammy and I both worked in the the State Department, and I think her overview was was very helpful. Uh, I think it's fair to say that inspector generals don't tend to be particularly popular people within the agencies that they are covering for the very reason that they are trying to look for fraud and abuse. Uh, She's right that there is a regular rotation of bureaus and embassies that are inspected by the inspector general. Uh, So it's not like he is coming in in a purely partisan role to simply look after things that the secretary or other political appointees are doing, but they are looking very broadly at the the work of of the agency. Uh, And I think there's a lot of very real questions about what is happening here with his firing, especially given the large number of inspections that were underway and ongoing. Jane, you also had mentioned the Madison dinners, and I think this also gets to the point of of the morale issue within the building that that Tammy was talking about. Uh, The department as a whole has very little representational funding. Uh, When I was there working in a front office, I didn't even have enough money to serve my guests coffee or tea the way you routinely are in Europe or the Middle East or, or anywhere else where you are visiting. And so certainly people recognize that the secretary wants to entertain. He does have a certain amount of representational funding to be able to do that. But when people look at the guest list of these dinners and they see very little international connection to them, uh, as well as a large number of Republicans and questions about whether or not Pompeo was seeking a Senate or, or another office, this again gets to questions of, of department resources, which have been cut in recent years, uh, morale, uh, as we have been discussing, as well as double standards for what the leadership is being held to as opposed to the rank and file diplomats. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Amanda, that there's, you know, at a time when the department is so pinched to see him and his wife cleaning up at these fancy dinners and maybe building a 
database of potential donors and political supporters undoubtedly upsets the workforce. And I would note here that, you know, Pompeo has been fiercely upset about leaks in the department from the time he took over. He's warned the workforce against leaking. And what's so interesting is that the minute the IG got fired, multiple media outlets were clearly getting lots of leaks from inside the building. I mean, the fact that NBC got every invitee and every invite and the budgets for all these Madison dinners tells you that the workforce is just like, dude, we don't care. You know, we got to we got to open the robes and show everyone what's going on here. And thank God they did. Keeps us busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of, uh, I don't even know how to transition to this. How do I go from Mike Pompeo to Susan Rice? I'm just speaking of opening the robes. I, I guess. Yeah. OK. Declassifying memos. There we go. Or emails. So Susan Rice on January 20th. Day of the inauguration, 2017, Susan Rice, then the minutes left to be, I suppose, national security advisor, wrote a sort of note to file, an email to herself recounting a meeting that had happened about two weeks earlier in the Oval Office with the president herself, Vice President Biden, FBI Director Jim Comey, uh, essentially talking about both the Russian election interference investigation as well as concerns around Michael Flynn, who by that point, officials understood had been having a lot of strange and and to some unsettling conversations with Russia's ambassador to the United States. And this also came up in the meeting in which Mike Flynn, or sorry, say James Comey, uh, seemed to suggest to the president, you know, I maybe have some concerns about sharing classified information with him, and maybe we should be careful. Very unusual conversation, not the kind of things you usually see happening during a transition period about the incoming senior team. Um, This email, most of which I guess has been declassified for some time, was fully declassified this week. And uh, my friend Betsy Woodruff Swan over at Politico writes uh, that essentially uh, most of the email just followed up on an intelligence briefing about interference in 2016. And the email memorialized two weeks after it happened said that Obama wanted to make sure, quote, every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book. Now, Ben, Republicans think this email only bolsters their theory uh, of, I guess, what we're calling Obamagate now, that the Obama administration was spying on the Trump campaign and trying to set up Michael Flynn to lie to the FBI. Um, Some have noted that Obama must have been saying, let's handle things by the book because somehow they weren't already handled that way. And I think some Republicans have said they're suspicious that Rice wrote this account at all to herself two weeks after the fact. Um, So what do you make of what Rice wrote and what do you think it tells us about the Russia investigation about Obamagate? Tim Miller wrote in the bulwark this morning that this was such a giant nothing burger that it is actually the continent of nothing burger on which all other nothing burgers stand. And that's what I think, actually. I I think, uh, first of all, it is utterly unremarkable for somebody like Susan Rice to write a letter, to, uh, a memo to file describing a particularly memorable, shocking meeting that she attended. And, you know, when when you learn from the FBI director 
that the incoming national security advisor is somebody that you have concerns about sharing classified information with. That is the kind of, and the president has to be briefed on it. That is the kind of thing that you might very well and very reasonably uh, decide to record for, for posterity. That the president said that everything should be handled by the book is, by the way, consistent with the way we know he interacted with Jim Comey in general, because Comey has always credited him with leaving investigative matters and making clear he didn't want to get involved in investigative matters. And so what the email actually says is that the president, other than saying he wanted it all handled by the book, uh, said he didn't want to be briefed on the criminal justice side of, of, of any of this. And that's perfectly consistent with what we know about Obama's relationship with Comey. Uh, by the way, to the extent that it needed to be said, handle it all by the book, that may be more of a reference to the Clinton email stuff, which was handled a little bit not by the book than it was a suggestion that the Flynn stuff was being handled not by the book. And then that Comey said, we're handling it all by the book is, of course, perfectly consistent with what Comey has always said and what all the FBI people have said about the way they handled the Flynn thing uh, and the, the Russia investigation in general. There really wasn't a book to handle these questions by, but they were playing it very straight, which they did. And so I don't actually see like, I, I, I mean, I suppose you could say Susan Rice was lying in her file memo about what happened. And when she says Obama said, handle it all by the book, what, he, what that means is that he actually said, I want you to spy on the mofo and, you know, be really aggressive and set him up and get him to lie. But that's not what the memo says. What the memo describes is a difficult situation where you have counterintelligence concerns and potentially criminal concerns about the incoming national security advisor. And so you have to brief the president and his people are kind of alarmed and you all agree that the way to do it is to do the right thing. That's what the memo says. Amanda. Uh, I agree with with Ben and have been a little bit perplexed in recent days about how and why this has become a, a story. I, far from being a, a rogue operation, uh, Obama actually warned Trump to his face about Flynn. So there was nothing secretive going on there. Uh, the idea that, that Obama was talking about wanting to do this by the book is consistent with that approach. Uh, as Ben said, it is not a surprise that a national security advisor would write a memo to the file in the email, which is kept as part of the White House National Archive and is clearly very easy to find, given that it was dug out and, and declassified. Uh, and more broadly, the intelligence community concluded that Russia had interfered in the election, and Flynn himself pled guilty to lying to the FBI regarding his contacts with the Russian ambassador all of which is consistent with what Susan Rice documented in that email. 
to me, the, the biggest connection that this has, again, back to what we were discussing earlier with the firing of the inspector general, is that everything has become so turned upside down in our perception of how government should work amid this very deep climate of mistrust, that when things are being done by the book, it suddenly is becoming politically questionable about what by the book means and and why that's happening. Uh, and I think that, that both of these cases are, are just showing uh, how much our institutions have been degraded and, and how much this climate of mistrust is pervading everything in Washington right now. Tammy. Yeah, I actually want to pick up on Amanda's last point here, because, of course, that's why this is all being dredged back up right now. It's not just that mistrust is plaguing our institutions in a sort of passive manner. It's that there are a set of politicians, most particularly the guy who is now seeking re-election to the presidency of the United States, who have ridden to power on the back of that mistrust and who are actively working to exploit that public mistrust in our institutions and in the possibility of impartial authoritative exercise of government. They are attempting to use that on behalf of their own reelection. And that's, you know, that's why we're talking about this. And, and so I think like, if you could imagine a situation in which the name of the National Security Advisor of the United States was a name that nobody knew, it wouldn't be in Politico. It's because it's Susan Rice, and Susan Rice is so closely associated with Barack Obama and with scandals that Republicans have been throwing at the Obama administration for, you know, getting close to a decade now. And so I, I think that, you know, this is it, it's the context of public mistrust that enables this to happen. But it, it, it to me, it's just an emphasis that no matter what this email said, it would still have the same effect when it's released, which is that for people who are who are already sympathetic to Democrats, it confirms that there's no there there. And to people who are already sympathetic to Republicans, it confirms that there was a grand conspiracy by the Obama administration. The, the actual text of the of the memo, the literal meaning of the words, you know, go by the book doesn't matter. I think Tammy, you're right on, and, and Amanda too. We're all you're all seeing a variation of, of of intelligence and classified material being deployed as political weaponry. And what I'm wondering is whether it's, if not exactly backfiring on the Trump administration, whether it's falling flat. You know, it, at, when Richard Grinnell a week or so ago, when we talked about this, declassified the names of people who may have received unmasked material that pointed to Michael Flynn and his communications with foreign officials. That felt very much, in a way, like the same kind of theme. And this very meeting that, that Susan Rice is memorializing has now been seized upon by some in the right-wing press as saying this was evidence that Joe Biden was in on it, too. And it even led to speculation about whether what was really afoot here was some kind of setup to get Bill Barr and the Justice Department to indict Joe Biden for some kind of crime related to Obamagate, which kind of tells you where a lot of people's assessment of Bill Barr is these days. Um, but Ben, maybe this is to you. You know, Barr in a press conference, I thought very notably 
said clearly in regards to investigations that are going on right now about the handling of the Russia probe, which I think is sort of what Trump means by Obamagate in his shorthand, said he does not envision indictments or any kinds of charges against Joe Biden and Barack Obama, which signaled to me, and we've seen kind of, you know, you know this before with with with, with Burr that he'll go along only up to a certain point, and then he kind of starts trying to like decry uncle and saying to the president, "Please stop making what I'm doing look like your political errands," even though a lot of people think they are. I mean, do you agree that that was you know the attorney general uh, bar saying? trying to just sort of like put up a bulwark there and say, I know what's going on here, but I want to at least signal to people I'm going to have no hand in, in that. So I, I was actually perplexed by that statement by Barr. So first of all, he has no business talking about who's not going to be indicted in a pending investigation. If there were a real criminal investigation here, you know, saying, saying, un, like, basically, I can't envision the circumstances in which this would reach person X would be a very peculiar thing for an attorney general to do. And that seemed to me a kind of tacit admission that it's not a normal or real investigation, right? There is no investigation of Obamagate. There is a, a unclear what it is inquiry by John Durham that may have a criminal component with respect to uh, an individual or two low down in the totem pole, and that seems chiefly aimed at allowing Bill Barr to make ominous-sounding statements about political-level officials. But first of all, I, I don't even understand when people say indict Barack Obama or Joe Biden, nobody articulates what the supposed crime they're supposed to have committed is. Is it that surely we're not talking about forcing Mike Flynn to lie? Is it about the Carter Page FISA in which none of them had anything to do with? I mean, the whole thing is so nutty. And the fact that the attorney general even spoke to it gives it more credence than it's worth. Had he been asked, had I been the attorney general, had I been asked the question, I would have said to the reporter, what on earth are you talking about? And that would have been the proper answer, that the idea that you take seriously that there's an investigation that could reach Joe Biden seriously enough to say, well, I don't think it's going to go there. You know, our concerns about criminality lie elsewhere. Even that is giving it more oxygen than it deserves. What is Barack Obama and Joe Biden accused of doing here? Well, we might find out. <clears throat> you know the crime, Ben. You know the crime. Yeah, Shane, you know it's something. It's something bad. You we don't need crime. to know what it is. It's I don't bad. have to tell you. You go ask. Go ask them. You know the crime. Look it up. You know the crime. Um, I know a new word this week, thanks to an excellent column, Amanda, that you wrote in Foreign Policy. It's a German word. I'm now going to- I want to hear you say it. I'm going to try. Okay. I'm going to try. I've been practicing it in my head as you've been talking. Is it Offnung Discussion Orgien? <laughs> Come on, Amanda. 
I I do not speak German, uh, so so I think that that was a very a very good attempt at the word. <clears throat> so, Öffnung uh, discussion orgien or orgien <laughs> loosely translates to orgies of discussions about reopening the economy in the time of the COVID nineteen pandemic, more or less. <laughs> so, I, the, Germans have, the Germans have a word for everything. Orgies of discussions. Um, which are apparently there are these orgies just happening all across Germany. I hope that they're appropriately distanced. Um, and they're very orderly. Very orderly. You will get in line for the orgy. And <laughs> start on time. <laughs> and finish quickly. It doesn't sound very fun. Well, it sounds like the worst orgy ever. God. <laughs> Hey, just there are similar things happening here in Washington that well, you can participate yeah. in. Just pick your state. Very different kind. In yeah. fact, I'd wait till I get to my object lesson. Um, <laughs> you're going to hang around now, listeners. Um, but this word, Amanda, as you write, is, re- is reference to these discussions that are happening around Germany and, and elsewhere, too, I suppose, in their various forms about how do people go about re-emerging into to normal life or a life in which we are living with, you know, the coronavirus and trying to adapt to that until it is no longer such a present threat that uh, in so many ways as it has been for months now. And you write about the experiences people are having. You contacted a huge number of people, got all kinds of responses, text messages, messages back. So tell us what you're hearing from people around the world as they are wrestling with this question and some of the common themes that you found. Sure. So I reached out to friends and former colleagues uh, and people I knew in about 65 different countries and asked them what they were discussing. What things do people miss? What's reopening first? How are people approaching these things? Uh, and discovered some some similarities and, and some differences. Uh, almost universally, everybody was missing their families, at least the relatives that they were not currently sharing a house with. Uh, people were missing grandparents, for example, and no that the elderly really had been suffering during this pandemic. People were getting quite fed up with, with their children, uh, especially in countries like Spain and Colombia that were under very tight lockdown, where children were not actually allowed to leave the house uh, since the middle of March. So for those of you that are, are frustrated being stuck at home with your children, uh, imagine how much more frustrated you would be living in small downtown apartments uh, with your children unable to, to go outside forever. Uh, Even more so, some people were trying to manage all of this without alcohol. In South Africa, people were not allowed to buy alcohol since the beginning of the lockdown. Similar situation in India, places where there was a very strict lockdown. People were not allowed to even leave the house themselves uh, to do minimal amounts of, of exercise. So everybody was very much looking forward to, to things reopening. Uh, I think almost universally, as, as Tammy alluded to at the beginning, people wanted to get their haircuts. A poll in Greece showed that this was the number one thing that people wanted to do after lockdown. People wanted to exercise outside. They wanted to send their children outside. They wanted to be able to return to, to places of worship. Uh, Lots of interesting debates happening about schools. Uh, Some countries were letting little kids go back to school first. Other countries were letting older kids go back to school first. Some countries were shutting schools entirely and punting the the question until the, the fall. 
another interesting thing, if you look at Latin America and Africa, which has gotten a lot less press coverage in the U.S., is this real question of food security. So in some of these countries, social distancing simply isn't possible depending on how people live. Staying at home is not possible depending on, on where people are. Uh, many people need to go to the markets on a daily basis, such as in Cuba, where you have a command economy. Uh, and a lot of people live off the informal economy. So if you don't go to work on a given day to sell things, you're simply not going to have money to be able to, to feed your, your families. Um, and then more broadly, also looked at a lot of, of issues in terms of how different police forces were trying to enforce some of these rules. And then there's also a lot of similar debates that we're seeing in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere about the use of technology and how much of people's personal privacy they are willing to give up in the name of surveillance for the good of, of their health protection. Amanda, one of the things that you found in this conversations that you these conversations you're having is that I'm fascinated by the use of the word lockdown, and we've thrown it around in the United States a lot. And we did not have a lockdown in the U.S. compared to what happened in Italy or in Spain or in these countries where, you know, as you just said, where people could literally not go outside of their home uh, to buy things, to even get some fresh air. And and I've always thought, and even discussing about this with my friends, that that we were fortunate in that respect because while our lives have been, you know, extraordinarily disrupted, just being able to go outside or have some little bit of semblance of normality kind of is a thing you can cling to each day. And I wonder if people who you talk to in these places where they were just genuinely shut in worry that once the lockdown lifts, people are just going to sort of, you know, go crazy, right? And then it's going to be an orgy of a different kind where people just flood into the streets and all this pent up angst and aggression comes out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And in fact, what some European countries are now experiencing as phase one reopening is a situation similar to what the United States has been in for the last two months. Uh, as you said, in some countries like Italy, Spain, and France, people actually needed to print off auto certificates from the internet that explained where it was they were going. And they were only allowed to leave the house to go to the grocery store, to the doctor or essential workers such as doctors and nurses. And people in some of these countries simply were not allowed to leave their homes for any other reason. Uh, a friend of mine in South Africa told me that she was going to walk to the grocery store, you know, about a quarter mile from her house and was actually stopped by police and turned back. Uh, I write about the story of an expat friend living in Spain whose 12-year-old daughter for her birthday wanted to be allowed to take the trash 50 yards outside the building to a communal receptacle, which was in violation of their lockdown laws. And her mother had agreed until a police car parked nearby and then told her that that she couldn't. Uh, and you're right that in some of these countries, there has been a bit of an explosion uh, in, in some ways when, when things have opened. You saw this in India, for example, where people had not been able to purchase alcohol during the 40 days of lockdown. And so when they finally allowed liquor stores to reopen, they tried to very carefully space people but there were such chaotic scenes that some local governments actually closed stores again and imposed about a 70% tax on, on alcohol. So in some of these places, the reopening unleashed such pent-up feeling uh, that it led to the very types of irresponsible behavior that they had been trying to prevent. 
Tammy. Yeah, I'm really curious for the logic of um, shutting down alcohol sales specifically in a place like South Africa. Or was it just that they closed all stores, you know, except for absolutely necessary food stores? But I, I'm, I think what I'm really curious about is the way different you would expect that different societies with different cultures and different attitudes toward politics and different attitudes toward families and so on would have different levels of voluntary compliance. And so in the places that had these super strict lockdowns, I mean, I'm trying to imagine living in an apartment with little kids for like two months where the little kids literally were not allowed to go outside for two months. Like, was voluntary compliance actually so good in these situations? Or, you know, is it just that we don't we don't necessarily hear so much about the level of violations, whereas here, when you see people refusing to wear a mask in the grocery store, it becomes national news? Um, on your, your two questions in South Africa, it was alcohol very specifically. Um, one press report suggests that alcohol is responsible for 40% of emergency hospital admissions, whether it's drunken fights, domestic violence, drunk driving. And so there was a very deliberate effort to try and reduce the incidences of those things. Wow. So it was like lessen the burden on the ER. Yeah, yeah. And so given that you have thousands of trauma cases going to emergency rooms every week, uh, if you can at least remove things that are alcohol related, you're going to cut down significantly on the people that are going to the emergency room for those types of incidences. Uh, it does not explain why they also banned the sale of cigarettes, uh, which they briefly planned to reallow. Uh, and then there was a crackdown and that was restricted uh, before the, the reopening on cigarettes actually uh, went, went into effect. Uh, on the situation with, with children, there tended to be pretty heavy handed policing in some of the countries that had those very strict regulations. In Spain, for example... This expat friend of mine said that she would take some of her children up to the rooftop of the building to give them a space to be able to play outside. And there was actually low-flying police helicopters with bullhorns that would come and yell at them and tell them that rooftops were for drying laundry. They were not for recreation. And so it seems to have become a bit of a family game to have played on the rooftop until they heard the sounds of helicopters and then everybody ran inside. Uh, a friend who was in Colombia had similar frustrations where she said, you know, in a very uh, a culture that loves children, dogs were allowed outside for 20 minute walks to do their business, but children were not allowed outside. And when she took her children into the interior courtyard of the building, she was seeing that neighbors were taking pictures of her and the, the children being outside. Uh, so there also seemed to be a lot of neighbor on neighbor policing going on. Amanda, I'm curious whether there are countries that you emerged particularly impressed with how they manage the, you know, severity of the lockdown with the process of relaxation of it. So which, when you look around the world and say, you know, which country does the does the degree of lockdown seem most rational and the emergence from it seem most rational? What countries come to mind and are they the countries that have 
you know, done the best in terms of numbers with coronavirus cases? Two of the countries that I think have have gotten a a tremendous amount of praise and have been quite successful are South Korea and New Zealand. Uh, South Korea had been quite aggressive from the beginning in terms of developing uh, contact tracing. They had an app that would uh, track where people had been and notify others if they had come into contact with somebody who was infected. Uh, And their numbers have actually been very, very low. Uh, New Zealand obviously is a small country with a smaller population, but you had a prime minister who was very forward-leaning. You had a population that was compliant. There was a huge degree of information that was provided that that people followed, and they've essentially managed to flatten the curve to essentially having no cases. Uh, The other set of cases that people are quite interested in studying are Sweden uh, compared to what happened with its neighbors. Sweden's model was a bit different in the sense that they did not completely lock down. Uh, Small children were still going to schools. Uh, people had the opportunities to to go to restaurants and bars, albeit in in lower numbers. Uh, although they certainly did not have the degree of independence that I think sometimes the the media has been portraying. With all of my friends there talking about primarily working from home, uh, not going out and socializing as much as they did. Their numbers of infection and deaths are higher than some of their Nordic neighbors. But what will be interesting to look at after the next six months or so are what their figures are in terms of the economic effects, as well as some of the psychosocial effects on on some of the the citizens more broadly. So so I would put uh, New Zealand and and South Korea in the very positive category. And then I think looking at what happened among the, the Nordic countries with Sweden as an interesting comparator. Uh, will be interesting in in the medium term. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Ben, do you want to go first? So my object lesson is an iPhone app called uh, Chess by Post. I have never been a serious chess player, but over the last couple of months, I have managed to keep eight to 10 chess games going continuously. And I have to say it has been one of the things about the lockdown that has been most intellectually stimulating and really neat. And I think this app is a, is a, is a lovely thing. It allows you to play slow motion chess. So you have five days to make a move. Oh my God. And then the next, the other person has five days to make a move. And so it is really like old time playing chess by letter. And it's, it's a, um, it's a pretty wonderful thing just to have, uh, you know, sort of a dozen chess games spread out in front of you anytime you take out your phone and one of them or two of them or six of them, sometimes I wake up in the morning and all of them are my move. And so I sit there over morning coffee and uh, think about lots of chess games for very short periods of time, because then it might be another three days before the opponent has turned around and moved. So it's a, it's a lovely little uh, thing that has come up during lockdown. Sounds insane. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. I have enough trouble playing one chess game. <laughs> You're crazy. Uh, Tammy, what's your object? Um, so my object is a 
book. It's a book by Cecilia Munoz, who was the head of the Domestic Policy Council under President Obama. She actually worked in the Obama administration all eight years in the White House in a couple of different capacities. And the book is called More Than Ready, Be Strong, Be You, and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. And it's marketed as what that subtitle says, you know, inspiration and lessons for women of color. I found it to be that and and to be wonderful as that, but it is so much more. Um, and I really want to commend it as a book on leadership, which, you know, we talk about a lot in national security world, you know, American leadership, uh, the leadership that the president of the United States or um, the secretary of swagger are supposed to offer. And what is so fantastic about this book's look at leadership is is the leadership style that she describes that was clearly highly effective for her in 20 years of advocacy on behalf of uh, Latinx Americans and then eight years in the White House building and leading incredible teams, working on really tough issues like immigration and also things like pandemic response. It's an inclusive style. It's a style that uh, invests in your team and invests them with authority. It's a style that asks for a lot of feedback, 360 degree feedback from the people that she works with. And she comes across in this book as incredibly confident and incredibly effective. It's rare to get this kind of portrait of leadership in action that's so different from our usual sort of tough guy, I told them who's boss. And I have to say, one of the things I love in this book is that she calls out by name one of her colleagues, Rahm Emanuel, who was President, President Obama's chief of staff, for what she describes as clearly a very toxic leadership style, um, one that relies on inculcating fear in his staff so that they're afraid to disappoint him. I, I just thought it was a fantastic book. It's also full of great stories and great portraits of how you have impact on really tough policy issues. Um, and for all of our listeners who are interested in public policy and government service, I think it's it's a very worthwhile read. Great. Uh, Amanda, what's your object? So I also have a book. Uh, I have been trying to use my quarantine time productively, if not cleaning my closet, at least getting uh, some reading done. Uh, and I just finished reading Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and I, I feel like it fit into some of our earlier conversation because he's essentially looking at this question of why we have a hard time determining whether or not strangers are telling us the truth. And he goes through a large number of, of cases looking at, um, you know, disputes that have been happening over policing, especially when there's racial differences, uh, looking at moles within the CIA, looking at the Bernie Madoff case, uh, looking at conversations that British leaders had with Hitler trying to understand his intentions in the run up to, to World War II. And his general conclusion uh, is that we as humans often tend to default to the truth and want to believe that people can't possibly be lying to us, even if all of the facts uh, point very clearly to the fact that, that we are. Uh, so I would commend this as a, a very interesting uh, and also a, a quite timely read. Well, for my object, I promised you all an orgy. 
Uh, <laughs> so good. A virtual orgy. Is oh it no! German orgy. Yeah, it's a Georgian <laughs> orgy, and not like Europe, Georgia, the South. Like Atlanta, uh, Georgia. Like, uh, in fact, like Atlanta. In fact, more appropriately, to more uh, specifically, Alpharetta, Georgia. Um, my excellent colleague at the post, Stephanie McCrumman, has this dispatch this week from Alpharetta, which is, a for people who don't know the area, it's a, a suburb, mostly wealthy part of suburban Atlanta. Uh, and as becomes uh, a, a point within the story, too, it's also a largely white wealthy suburb. And I'm not going to ruin it for people. I'm going to let them go read it themselves and see if they can pick up on some of these subtleties in the story. But what's fascinating is she went to this shopping center. It's essentially a big, you know, sort of high end strip mall with a Whole Foods and an anthropology and a Starbucks and some restaurants and watched as people were free to go shop and eat and try on dresses and sit and drink, you know, gross cocktails. That's my little editorial spin uh, at this shopping center. And uh, this was on, of course, you know, not long after the governor, Brian Kemp, had said essentially Georgia is reopened. And what I like about this is, well, it, it's quite clear that Stephanie is approaching this with a very skeptical eye and a very cautious eye. And even some, some, you can sense in some places becoming almost fearful for people. Um, it is not a caricature. It's not lampooning, you know, these, you know, sort of, you know, idiot middle-class people who just can't wait to go drink their frappuccinos. Um, it's actually quite sensitive and it's trying to meet people kind of where they are as they are finally back to some kind of normalcy and they just want to go out and browse and shop uh, and sort of engage in conspicuous consumption because they've been going crazy. Uh, it's just vivid. It's beautiful. It's just filled with quotes. I mean, some of them are hilarious. Some of them are quite poignant. Some of them are a little infuriating. And I think it's just a great portrait of you know, one neighborhood that uh, has, you know, at least these people in it thinking, you know, essentially that they are either immune from the virus or they're ready to take their chances. And um, I just thought it was really well done. And I have a feeling there's going to be scenes from Avalon playing out all over the country uh, in the coming weeks. And we're just going to have to see what happens, as the president says. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And we'll talk about it next week. But for now, you guys, that's the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find your own how to throw a lawfare orgy guide um, <laughs> at, hold on, let me see if I can get it, at ungunsdiscussionorgian.de. Lawfare.de. Is it? Yeah, good, good. I, I, I was going to correct you on the country uh, code, but uh, you got it right. Okay, good. I'm glad I at least got one thing right today. If nothing else. TheLawfareStore.com. <laughs> you can get that is where you get your rational security and lawfare merch. Exactly. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And if you really love it, please leave us five stars. It's helped so many people find the podcast, and we are very grateful for that. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary. Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited as always by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mike Pompeo and his possibly illegal reboot of the Baja Men classic, I Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> <laughs>
good. Yeah, well, we know he is not the guy who lets the dog out. Someone yeah. does that for him. Someone does it. He let the dog out, not me. I don't know why the dog got let out, but the dog got let out. Go talk to the dog letter outer. Don't bother me with these things. I thought better of you, Ben. How dare you ask me about the dog? <laughs> Sophia Yan is judging you, too. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Amanda Slow, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bow wow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.